Welcome to the party, pals. I'm Phil Gawthorne, action movie screenwriter. And I'm Liam Billingham, movie podcaster. And together we host Die Hard on a Blank, a podcast from Sugar23 that explores the influence of Die Hard on action cinema. In each episode, we'll talk about one major action movie that was released after Die Hard. Now, some of these movies take place on a bus. On a boat. Or even a roadhouse. Uh, sure. The point is, these are action movies that couldn't exist without Die Hard, and its DNA is everywhere. Die Hard on a Blank is a celebration of action movies and a deep dive into the ways that Die Hard shaped the action genre. So if you're a casual fan or an action movie Die Hard. Ooh, very nice. Then Die Hard on a Blank is for you. Yes, you personally. Our first two episodes, which are all about the original 1988 masterpiece Die Hard, drop December 21st, because Die Hard is a Christmas movie, wherever you get your podcasts. Phil, do the line. Now we have a podcast. (laughs) Ho, ho, ho. I'm Liam Billingham. I'm George Fogopoulos. And this is Oeuvre Busters. Someday we're going to say it. I, I feel okay. like you stepped on my line there. But I didn't. It's the same line. Can, do, uh, can we have Busters, another take, please? Deep, deep dives by dialectical <laughs> dudes. We're here. We're back talking about the films of Akira Kurosawa and Toshiro Mifune and also more Kira Kurosawa movies. And our guest today to talk about Throne of Blood is Isaac Butler. Isaac, how are you? I'm doing just great. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. We're, we're thrilled to have you. When, when we were planning the season, I was like, I think Isaac would be a good person to talk to about a very timely Shakespeare adaptation. Yeah, yeah. I, I've, you know, I, I, I know it and I love Shakespeare. I've been playing a lot of Ghosts of Tsushima to, uh, you know, prepare. So Ooh, what's that? We got to We got to talk about this. I, I haven't played this game yet. We got to talk it's, about it's, it. It's it's like, you know, the Witcher three or the sort of open world RPGs. Yeah. It's one right. of those, but set in feudal Japan. And uh, it heavily it so heavily draws on samurai films that it has a Kurosawa mode that nice. you can enable where not only does the um, film or the the uh, uh, graphics turn to a grainy black and white, but the, the sound mix becomes mono. Whoa. Wow. So that it looks like a Kurosawa film. So, That's amazing. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. What I've been playing system it is this on? It's on the PlayStation 4. When I take breaks from writing or, you know, right after my kid's gone to bed or whatever, I'll, I'll, I'll play through a couple of missions and, and marvel at the beauty of, of it's feudal made Japan. up feudal Japan. Can we might, buy PlayStation, uh, Liam, and yeah, do we it like to, the tax, get, the tax write-off? Get, yeah, we'll do it this as a Patreon research for the reward. Pod. <laughs> um, Man, when you work in culture, everything's research. Everything's you can write off. You know, if our president can write off $90 million of haircuts or whatever. Um, well, in addition to playing video games. Isaac Butler is a writer and theater director. He is most recently the writer-director of Real Enemies, an experimental documentary exploring conspiracy theories in the American psyche, co-created with the composer Darcy James Argue and the media designer Peter Negrini. His writing has appeared in The Guardian, Vulture, New York Magazine, Entrepreneur, The Village Voice, and he's a frequent contributor to Slate.com. For Slate, he created and hosted the podcast Lend Me Your Ears, a podcast about Shakespeare and politics, and currently co-hosts Working, a podcast about the the creative process. He is currently writing The Method, a history of American acting for Bloomsbury. Do you sleep? 
I do. <laughs> I do. I, 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 I yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> I do. You know, I think of myself as not a very productive person. And then I look back at like what I've done over the past few months or whatever. And I'll just be yeah. like, oh, I actually I actually kind of am a productive person. Uh, I should beat myself up less. Has um, writing been productive in quarantine? Has it been great to have that to focus on the book? Um, yes and no. I mean, I have a six-year-old child. So mm. when this all began and her school shut down, you know, my wife has a has a very demanding corporate job. And gotcha. so I was I was the primary caregiver for our kid for the first uh, six weeks or so. And then we eventually um, moved in first with my mother-in-law and then later subsequently with my parents so that we could get some child care support nice. and once that happened and i was able to work on the book again it, it was good to have that um absolutely and it was good to have have time to do that um writing a book requires a certain amount of um withdrawing from the world to get it done mm-hmm. so not having the world available to me was not the worst thing uh, uh, in the universe. Although all things being equal, I would rather not have a pandemic and have like the distractions <laughs> of movies and theater and whatnot. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think most of us would, would, would rather go back to that. Uh, agreed. Yeah. I mean, I was with a three and almost three year old for three months, you know, sort of doing this, the not solo, but my wife was working and it, it drains, it's draining. It's hard to, at yeah. the end of the day to be like, I'm going to be creative now. <laughs> Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. That was around when um, we relaunched Working, the podcast I currently Mm -hmm. do for Slate. And so, you know, just whatever couple of hours I had during the day just went to that, basically, to booking guests and taking meetings and, 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 and things like that. So it's nice, you know, things, school's back. It's good to have um, uh, concentrated time to be able to write. Absolutely. Especially because my deadline is in three weeks. Oof. Well, oh, wow. thank you for taking an hour or so to talk about Throne of Blood from 1957. Um, Kumono Sojo is the Japanese title, which translates rather badassly to Spiderweb Castle. Oh, so I kind of disagree. As... I think Throne of Blood is way cooler. Well, why don't you tell us what happens in Throne of Blood, and then we'll, I would love we'll to. Can I just it, also qu- can I just also quickly say that I was googling um, Throne of Blood to find out what year it came out, and while you were introducing Isaac, and I wrote down. Th- uh, Throne of Butler. Um, so Isaac, if you ever want to use the title Throne of Butler, I like that. Um, yeah, feel free. Um, so yeah, Throne of Blood it closely follows the plot of its source material, which is obviously Macbeth. Uh, Toshiro Mifune plays Lord Wasizu, who learns uh, with via creepy evil spirit that he will become Lord of the North Castle. And this is after kind of we're introduced to some kind of like political intrigue very early on in the film through this kind of interesting montage sequence in which we learn of this battle that's taking place off screen. So um, Mifune's character is with his friend Mickey, who obviously plays the kind of Banquo character to Mifune's or what she's used, Macbeth. Um, And eventually, obviously, the prophecy comes true. He is made Lord of North Castle uh, by Lord Tuzuki. Once the prophecy comes true, him and his wife obviously conspire, become much more greedy or taken by this kind of terrible ambition to see the rest of the prophecy comes true, which would see him become uh, Lord of Spiderweb's castle or Spiderweb Castle. And eventually Lord Suzuki comes to visit Lord Washizu. And this is where they plot, obviously, to kill him. And they do as such. Um, They eventually obviously conspire to kill his best friend, Mickey, to make the rest of the prophecy come true and to prohibit Mickey's son who has also been prophesied to become the eventual 
kind of leader of Spiderweb Castle, the Lord of Spiderweb Castle. Um, we also learn that Washizu's wife is pregnant, thus implying that the killing of Mickey and his son would obviously make for their heir to eventually take over. Uh, of course, the guilt builds up over the murders. Uh, Washizu is slowly kind of driven mad. There's a really awesome sequence, obviously, that we'll take a look at or I'm sure we'll examine in which he believes he sees his best friend's ghost. Uh, his wife is also, of course, driven mad. And we get, again, a um, very... Uh, that very famous scene from Macbeth where she's trying to wash her hands of the spectral blood, but it won't come off. Eventually, Mickey's son and other forces conspire against Mufuni's Macbeth, Washizu, and he is eventually killed in this amazing sequence at the very end of the film in this incredible barrage of arrows. And the film, as Liam puts in his notes, is kind of really cyclical because it begins or it takes us back to the beginning of this kind of voiceover Um is it a voiceover? I forget. Yeah, it is, right? It's chanting. It's like a choral yeah. chant. Uh, regarding kind of the uh, folly of his ambitious plans. The end. There we deep. go. Shit's deep. Throne of blood. It's Yeah, it's a, it's a great movie. A um, couple real quick things about production that I think we can, that may influence our conversation. So this was, Kurosawa wrote this for somebody else, but he ended up doing it after Toho saw the budget and they were like, this is too expensive to hand to a young director, which is interesting because in his notes, he says that he was, he wrote much more clear visual descriptions when writing for other people, which I think really shows in the production of this film. Um, they rehearsed for a month. Toho didn't do a lot of sam- samurai films. Taiye, one of the other studios, churned them out like almost like the the most obvious thing I could think of was like they they ch- they churned them out at the rate of like Marvel films. So when they did this film, Toho um, gave Kurosawa a month of rehearsal, which basically he implied that he did so that the actors could be in their costumes for a month and start to move appropriately, which I just think is really really interesting. Um, in the early scene where Miki and Wajizu are, are riding their horses, the actors really got lost. They didn't know where the cinematographer was, and it that sequence is one of those sequences where you're like, man, this is really going on for a while. But then you realize that they might have actually been then then actually lost, and they galloped for like hours and hours and hours for what comes out to like four minutes of screen time. Um, Finally, the film was heavily influenced by no theater with the makeup, particularly the Hida, the no warrior mask on Mifune's face. And interestingly, the mask on what would have been Lady Macbeth's face is called a Shakumi, which is a mask that represents separation from a loved one, which I think Mm. is a really interesting kind of take that this film has on that character in the in the kind of Banquo's ghost sequence. They're watching a, a, a no style performance, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, for sure. It has that kind of like quality. I feel as though this film is very influential on later productions of Macbeth because you see this the correlation with this a lot. Um, let's chat about the movie. Isaac, are you? Wh- what's your relationship with the play as a theater director? I'm sure you you know it. You've probably done it. I have never um, done it because mm-hmm. the curse terrifies me. No, uh, uh, <laughs> but I, I I have never done it. I've read it many times. I've taught it. When I was a kid, my uh, one of my best friends growing up was this real genius. He's still one of my best friends. It was it was this real genius, and he had read Macbeth in like the first grade. So I've actually like been talking about it since wow. I was like seven, even though I didn't read it till I was in high school. Um, you know, uh, I've seen many of the film adaptations, um, including there's this truly wonderful 
half hour long animated adaptation from Russia that's uh, wow. really incredible. But um, uh, so I, I I love the play and I've I've taught it. I I know it very well. Uh, I'm also a, a huge fan of the Canadian show Slings and Arrows, the yeah. second season of which is about a production, a that's sort of right. cursed production of Macbeth. So good. Um, so yeah, no, I'm I'm super into it. George, are you a, are you a Macbeth Macbeth head? Uh, <laughs> Have who, you taught Macbeth? Who is not a Macbeth head? Um, have I ever taught it? I think maybe once, but it I don't ex- I don't really remember. Yeah, I mean I love this play. I remember the f- reading it for the first time in high school. I did not read it for the first time in first grade on like Isaac's friend, but I did read it in high school, and yeah, I remember fucking loving it and the creepiness of it all is what in this particular version really kind of stands out funny funnily enough my dad gave me a copy of Macbeth to read when I was nine he was like you need to read this he was like you know you're you're old enough to read this and he's made me read it which is really really funny well it's famously like the shortest Shakespearean play too so it's like the gateway it's the gateway drug Young Liam, now now that you have reached the age of nine, it's time to find out that all human endeavor is futile. Is, yeah. And everything is folly. Enjoy yeah, it. Yeah, so let, let's, let me give you this play. Um, and then to speak to the curse in college, uh, I was in a production of Tartuffe, and one of the actors playing a role in the third act walked on stage um, in a Friday night show and fell and cut his neck and had to finish the scene with like a little trickle of blood on his neck. And that week in class, he was we were reading. Macbeth and he was playing Macbeth it's real man it's real man Um, it's real so we shouldn't say the name of it anymore on the podcast uh what'd you guys think of the film Isaac had you seen it before I had seen it before it had been a long time I want to say it was maybe senior year of college was the last time I saw it which to be clear was 20 years ago Mm -hmm. um but you know the the visually it's so monumental that, you know, images from it were just completely stuck in my mind. You know, mm-hmm. it's not like I had any trouble remembering it when I saw it again. Um, uh, whether it's the fog filled forest or the um, demon at the spinning wheel or the kind of staging of the scenes between um, Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. I can never remember the the analog characters names. Um, uh, uh, you know, all of those, all of those sequences. And of course the arrows at the M, which I'm sure we'll, we'll spend a while on. Um, so I had, it had been a while since I had seen it. I have sort of conflicting feelings about the film, which I want to be very clear, enjoyed greatly, have enormous respect for, and I think is gorgeous. But, but where the conflict comes in is, is there's a way in which it is kind of stripped the material down to its bare elemental essence and and that gives it a primal power but that also robs it of a certain amount of complexity that the source material has and i think when you get to particularly sort of the final third of the movie there's very little for it to do anymore it's just kind of like well we've just got to kind of wait until everything's arrayed against Toshiro Mifune and he can get shot to death you know what i mean like so so there was a certain thing that that i noticed that that it doesn't do what I would want from an actual production of the Shakespeare play. It is doing another thing of value, but I think to be completely honest, since this podcast is also about Mifune, I I think Mifune doesn't have much to do in the last third of the movie. And one of the ways you can tell is that every line delivery, he just screams at the top of his lungs. There's, there's not a, a, 
bit of nuance or variation from when you get to the dinner scene with Banquo's ghost till the end of the film. He is doing the same thing over and over and over again. I don't necessarily think that's his fault, but uh, uh, I found that a little frustrating. I wanted something more in that second half. But then again, if you did that, it wouldn't have its stripped down primal elemental mythic quality. That's what makes it so special in the first place. I mean, I just loved how austere it felt. Um, and it's interesting, at least for me, while I was watching this, I was thinking a lot about The Seven Samurai, which is kind of obviously a super different film, even though we're dealing with the same kind of, let's say, historical period or the same certain kind of archetypes or tropes to some degree. But I appreciated the fact that it was so austere. And I think that has a lot to do, obviously, also with the fact that I think Kurosawa was not only just kind of like trying to take out those time, like zero in on those elements that are essential to the story, um, but I think it also probably speaks to, again, like the original form of the play, that's the shortest Shakespearean play, that there is like an intensity and a pace to it that I think transfers really well. And still, the film isn't entirely short. It's just under two hours. But comparing it or thinking about it in relationship to something like The Seven Samurai, which again has like this epic scope to it. And this again retains some of that epic quality, but the fact that it was just kind of like this quick, like super charged film that there's like almost like no rest like the pacing is so so fast um and yeah just i think it was just like a series of just really captivating images and sequences so yeah the fog the the creepy evil spirit at the wheel um the ghosts the arrows even for even the the ways in like the blood soaked walls take on these incredible incredible qualities and i also do wonder if let's say some of that depth maybe that isaac isn't seeing is at least for me kind of conveyed through the images so that again like for example like the blood-stained walls which to me kind of take on this like incredible significance and i just spent like a lot of time just looking at those walls and those patterns and even like trying to like theorize if they're meant to like look like certain things and obviously they're not but that's just kind of my reading of them and just kind of like oh they almost look like abstract or like impressionist paintings of some kind but yeah for me so much of what the film is trying to convey is done visually and that doesn't require a lot of again exposition or a lot of text so for me yeah i just fucking love this film <laughs> i was like this is kurosawa <laughs> like this is kurosawa's horror film it is it is absolutely a horror film I yeah think. and 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 you know to me to just just sort of explain myself perhaps a second time a bit better <laughs> explain you know, yourself it, 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 explain, to defend my my you know to defend my um conflicted love for the movie um as opposed to my all-out rave of the movie you know to me it's like the movie works best as a series of individual sequences like each sequence yes. is so yeah. perfect and incredible uh that i felt like once they were all knitted together somehow it was there was something about it that made it a little less than the sum of its parts even though each of those parts was so exquisite and i've been trying ever since i rewatched it which was yesterday but i've been trying ever since i rewatched it to try to put my finger on like what exactly was it that i felt once you put all those things together wasn't quite connecting and and it's something i'll probably still be wrestling with after we record this you know i think I'm a, I'm sort of in the middle. I, this film is, I feel like, has gotten a stronger reputation in, in the, let's say, the like, it's, I feel like when I first started watching Kurosawa films, people didn't lean on Throne of Blood as much as maybe in the past few years. I feel like it's become like the underrated gem. And I feel like that shifts all the time. Someone the other day was like, no, his Russian films are his most underrated movies. But I think, to me, 
the, the, I'm somewhere in the middle. Like there's sequences in this movie that absolutely, I really, really wrote down for the opening when they show the castle. Like I had to watch that three times. I was like, how did they do this thing? And it almost opens. And I'm curious what your guys thoughts on this are, is that it almost, the opening almost feels theatrical. We have, I mean, we have this fade away of the fog and we see the castle. I believe it's a North castle and it almost feels like a set. I mean, it is a set, but it, it almost may, it makes me think of the play. And I think there's this tension that exists in the film between these remarkably visual moments and then moments that feel closer to a Shakespeare text. There's a sequence later on in the film where all these servants are sitting around the castle and they talk about that all the ra- how all the rats have left the castle. And mm-hmm. it's an extremely, let's say, compared to the rest of the film, chatty moment. It, there's a couple moments where this happens that feel... Maybe there's meant to be relief, like Kurosawa as a director is so in charge of, of what he's doing that he's like, let's have a little moment where we spend some time with not these terrible people and rather victims of the circumstance of this situation. And I think that that moment is fine, but it it contrasts so strongly with everything else that I sort of agree it doesn't feel like a sum. It doesn't feel as entirely cohesive as it could as a film and as an adaptation. Um and I think that that might be an interesting approach to take as we talk about it a little bit more, kind of the tension of the of what is a very, you know, the poetry of the original language versus the adaptation and, and how it feels kind of different than the others. How, did you guys feel like it was theatrical? Does the film feel theatrical to you when you're watching it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that there's actually like a couple of... Um specific things that Kurosawa was doing with the camera that emphasize that one is I am fairly sure correct me if I'm wrong there is not a single POV shot in the whole movie there might be like one Mm -hmm. at the end when Mm -hmm. he's when Mifune is gazing on his soldiers and realizing that they've betrayed him or that they're abandoning him but I don't think there actually is is one at all and so by placing the audience's eye outside the action that emphasizes the feeling that you are watching something that is sort of apart from you and on the stage and the other thing he does is the camera is often not like on the floor but it's often below the character's eye level staring up at them just a little Mm -hmm. bit this is particularly true and I think what what appear the most theatrically staged moments which are the conversations between uh mofune and izuzu yamada who plays his wife Mm -hmm. in the film where they're often standing very still at an angle with often the gorgeous blood-soaked wall behind them (laughs) so gross the the camera is a little bit below eye level like you are looking up at them and they are on the stage there's a lot of that for all the you know huge groups of armies and 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 weather that's swirling around the film there's a lot of those kind of moments that are are shot in a way that emphasizes their theatricality and creates a little bit of distance between the viewer and the subject. Yeah, one of the things that comes up in the Stuart Galbraith book, which it d- devotes an entire chapter to this film in lower depths as to theatrical adaptations, is that it feels as though uh, Kurosawa did not want to make an emotional film. He, in fact, wanted to make a very detached film. And it's to me, it, it really, I didn't feel, I was blown away by this film visually and things like that, but I, I was never like, I never deeply cared about the character. And I think that that's something to discuss, especially as it relates to what the movie might be saying about authoritarian figures. There's a real kind of step back. And to the interesting thing that you bring up about those sort of lower shots pointing up is that if you look at Japanese cinema in the 50s, Ozu was doing that. It was becoming this like really... Um, interesting trend that I think defined the way that a lot of people in in 
in the West look at Japanese cinema. It's been hugely influential to the form. Um, so with that in mind, jumping over to Lady Macbeth, I'd love to hear your guys' take on the way that Kurosawa takes the, the Lady Macbeth being such an a, essential part of the original and the, and such a point of discussion of the original text. How do you guys feel about the Lady Asaji Wazu, who the way he adapts her? I feel like this is a, a really different than when I think of Lady Macbeth, what I generally see. It's a really fascinating take on the character. I, I should say within the text itself, it's an extremely different character. It's not yeah. just about the performance or the staging or the, like a lot of the very big interventions into the text are actually in the Lady Macbeth, Mac, you know, it's versions of Lady Macbeth and Macbeth scene. And, and among other things, the thing that I found most surprising was the actual argument that she is making to convince him mm-hmm. to go through with the murder. So in the play, it's, hey, you wrote me. You have this ambition. We are partners. I am going to push you to do the thing that you want to do that you won't let yourself do. Admit. That's actually absent. For all, the, for all that the prologue and epilogue talk about ambition, discussion of his ambition is mostly absent from that argument in the actual film. What she actually says in the film is... Your best friend is going to betray you. He's going to Mm -hmm. tell your feudal lord about this prophecy. And that guy is going to kill you to protect himself. That's what's going to happen here. And so she's actually preying on his paranoia, which I think is really fascinating. Like to me, Mm -hmm. what the film really becomes is this increasingly claustrophobic nightmare about the, the paranoia of a system in which authority is incredibly strict and enforced, right? In this case, a feudal system. It's not a totalitarian system, but it's a feudal system. But it's a it's an authoritarian one, right? In which everyone owes absolute fealty. And the amount of paranoia within the movie, particularly in its first half, is really, that's, mm-hmm. that's not something that's really in the original source material. And I found that incredibly powerful, particularly in these troubled times. Can I ask a question? Because I totally forget, but is, is, is uh, Lady Macbeth in the original, does... Is there a stillbirth? Is there a pregnancy? No, there's a whole actually scholarly debate about whether she can have children, whether she has had children. She has this line about, I know what it is to have suckled. I'm not saying it exactly, but I know what it is to have given suck. I know what it is to have suckled a baby at my breast. And I would literally rip that baby off of my breast and dash its brains out on the ground to make you king. Right. Right. If I had done what you had promised. So there's a whole debate about her relationship to childbirth. The 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 that aspect of the character, I thought, was also really fascinating. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think. And that as like a distinction or a difference to me was it just because I was watching. I was like, oh, this from what I remembered, it was it was a difference from the original. Yeah. I mean, I I mean, what's this? I mean, what's really to say about the character, the way it's she's presented like super captivating. Um, what did you think about the stillness of her performance? I was totally, that was totally wild to me. Well, it seemed, I I was thinking, and I don't have anything really unfortunately constructive to say about it, but when I was watching it, I was thinking about the role that women play in Kurosawa films and one, like wondering about, again, the degree to which this is obviously like a lot of, a lot of ink has been spilled on Lady Macbeth and what she represents, but like treading the line between, I'm not saying the character, the character is misogynistic, but interesting to think about again, the role she plays in relationship to this like fragile male ego that she like, to some degree, perhaps like manipulates, easily manipulates, or again, is just drawing things out of his personality that are clearly already there. And then he wants to do so like, again, like the paranoia that's just kind of that infiltrates the air 
and that is always there when it comes to ambition, political power, like it's baked into the cake. There's no way to escape it because it's part of the system that perpetuates itself. But I mean, yeah, the stillness is, is like amazing. I think it suggests again, her kind of uh, both the lack of power that she has in the relationship and also the fact that she is like very, very powerful um it says something about like her the expectations of her being or playing like a domestic role of servitude to him so it is interesting that again yeah she doesn't move a lot but her language is what moves him or moves a lot of the action around her you know it's interesting on on two parts one is that there in the in the section of the biography on mifune and kurosawa the galbraith book he talks about how this is the second case where Kurosawa says to, says to an actress playing a part in one of his films, in this case, Lady Asagi, um, I don't know anything about women. And very much like leaves them to their own devices. And Azuzu Asuz- Yamada was a um, pretty well-known theater actress. Like she did a lot of theater beforehand and kind of came up that way. And like, this is a stretch from my perspective, but the stillness and the kind of the movements that really make me think of like Japanese theater techniques, like Suzuki and kind of the movement stuff that is really baked into using the body as a form of expression of the inner life of the character. And it's so interesting the way that she, she moves the sound effect of the across the floor and it it feels like the story is that kage musha which he made later was a rehearsal for ron but i have to think when making ron 30 years later he was like i've got a i'm i'm gonna take the performance that was given in this film and transpose it to lady kaide mm-hmm. in ron it feels so influential and it feels really rooted in a kind of performance technique that of little i know about japanese performance uh, it feels really rooted in that, especially considering she was a theater actress. Um, and to that point, I think it's interesting when you think about the Mifune character because there's a moment a little later in the film, or actually earlier, where Mifune is standing looking out in his courtyard and the servants have just talked about him and nothing is said, but we know we've just... this The scene that has just occurred is her being like, you need to kill the King Duncan analog in this case. And... What I what's really interesting is all of that is present in Mifune's performance. I tend to agree. I think he's stronger in the front half of the movie when there's some ambiguity about his how he feels. And I think that there's something of a void in the character that is filled with the ambition and the paranoia. And that moment is really strong because there's this there's a combination of a queasiness and an ambition that effectively define the Mifune. And I feel like in the second half, we get the Mifune of Seven Samurai. And in the first half, we get the Mifune of some some earlier, more anxious Mifune performances. I'd love to hear what you guys think about the Mifune performance. Isaac, if you have thoughts. Yeah. I mean, you know, as, as, I, as I said at the beginning, I think that the he sort of runs out of things to do in the script. I, I You know, like like mm-hmm. there is a, in, in terms of not um, actual actions he takes, but his character's dramatic action in the second half of the film is very repetitive. He's just mostly threatening people around him and uh, uh, scrambling to yeah. hold on to power and panicking. Right. And, and what that leads in the performance, the, the performance, I think, matches that repetitive quality in ways that I find a little exhausting. Um, Mm -hmm. I will say, you know, 
that is also a problem with some of the second half of some of Shakespeare's plays that, that, you know, Othello, for example, suffers from this problem that like how you vary your mm. performance as Othello in the last two acts of Othello is really hard because he sort of does the same thing over and over and over again. So, um, but the Mifune of the first half of the movie up until he kills the king and particularly after he kills his, uh, uh, Miki. Is that the friend's name? Miki, yeah. Miki. The Banquo. The Banquo. Analog, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it's a really fascinating performance because he's so terrified. Like that's what's really going on mm-hmm. is that he's terrified. He's he's not happy about being lost. He's not not particularly in the woods. He's not particularly happy of having stumbled upon some weird demonic spirit of chaos <laughs> you know he sort of thinks maybe the prophecy is a joke right there's that great scene where he's like oh hey yeah you're gonna have this castle and i'm gonna have this castle and your yeah. son's gonna be king and isn't that hilarious and then as soon as part of the prophecy comes true when you see the look on his face the look on his face says i am fucked the look on his face mm-hmm. does not say oh great i'm gonna be king he's like oh shit i am now yeah. doomed and he's afraid yeah, yeah. And, and that that dynamic i think is a really fascinating aspect of the character of Macbeth that could be brought out in more productions I think that like is that a dagger like I'm scared of these apparitions mm. I'm scared of myself I'm scared of my own ambition um and and so I I really loved the first again the the performance in the first half of the film but I do think maybe the screenplay lets him down a bit towards the end um it's interesting that you bring up the moment where they were in this case Miki and Waziju or Macbeth and Banquo early on in the in productions they have that moment where they're like hey you're gonna be king isn't that wild it's like to me it's one of the last really human moments in the entire play and so I always look for it and it's interesting to your point about paranoia because in this version they have that laugh moment and I was like so grateful for it because it lightens the mood for a second but then they look around they both are like ha ha uh, and it feels like Kurosawa makes this decision to be like, listen, we all know where this is going, which I think like, we, like, oh, ha, 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 but you you are fucked, you guys. Like he seems, he sort of like erases, he makes the tragedy of Macbeth inevitable right. in this film well, on some level. You know, once he, once the prophecy begins to come true, Macbeth is doomed for the reasons that, or uh, Wazishu, I just want to make sure I'm pronouncing this correctly, excuse me. Was, yeah, Washizu, Washizu, sorry. Yeah, Washizu is doomed the moment the prophecy starts coming true because his right. wife is absolutely correct that in a sort of Game of Thrones style way, mm-hmm. you know, his lord is going to have him killed if he's a threat. That's how he's going to deal with threats. He's just going to kill anyone who's a threat to him. Like, why wouldn't he? It's rational to do that, right? And so, you know, there's a weird way in which he's doomed no matter what. Because just because he's mm. heard the prophecy, mm-hmm. he's doomed. And that's the thing that he realizes in that moment, which I think is quite powerful. It's like she's whis- whispered poison in his ear or something like yeah. that. We just know it's coming. Yeah, for sure. Uh, George, you chatted a little bit about the Mifune's, kind of the role of him in there. What, what are your thoughts on the, on his, on the performance here? I mean, I, I think it's amazing. I think it's captivating. I mean, I think one thing we haven't talked about, too, is how uh, physically demanding it it is. Yeah. There's a, you know, there's a, like, to say that this is kind of him in, not as demanding as the Seven Samurai, I think, but, um, yeah, there's a lot of, like, like, the scene, for example, after he's killed the king and he comes back and they sit on the floor and there's, like, this brief moment where he's sitting there with his wife and they both have this look on their face, like, holy shit, what have we done? And the way in which he inhabits that moment 
of realization is just it's so amazing it's so powerful and yeah there's like a lot of horseback riding there's a lot of physicality on that end yeah he's in a suit um, of armor he's in a suit of armor which That's is way like a amazing. million pounds and you know maybe we could talk about it now but again the arrow sequence at the end is just like yes that shit crazy and so to those like were real that, arrows yeah that's what i'm saying that's really him really being shot at with arrows and the stumbling and the terror on his face is just like you know like it's real it's palpable it also reminded me by the way i'm like oh i think this is like francis Ford coppola probably stole all the arrows from apocalypse now from this scene where he was like, I want like a thousand arrows on that scene where they're going down the river and they're being shot at with arrows. Oh yeah. And, and he, he was like, I remember huh. there's a really fun like story where he's like, I want, he's like, I want a thousand arrows in the scene. And his, somebody on the set was like, Francis, that's insane. We can't do a thousand arrows. He's like, I want a thousand fucking arrows. And apparently the Kurosawa still, did it. And, <laughs> and apparently he only got something like, he didn't get his thousand arrows. He got like 500 or 700 arrows, but God damn it. <laughs> you know, it still worked. But yeah, it reminded me of that scene. I'm I like, think this is a, a great place to jump to that because I mean, they were real arrows. He was using his arms to indicate where he was going to go, right. which if you don't know that before makes it much more effective. I knew it before the rewatch and I was like, oh, I can kind of see it. But that's so, so sorry. Is it just like, like, he like would, the like, gestures flail? is going to indicate I'm going to go this way now right. and I'm going to go that way. And I mean, it's, it's until you see it, I hadn't seen it this film in like 10 years. I was just like, my jaw was on the floor. And I think that the thing that's interesting is this sequence goes on and on and there's something hilarious maybe not intentionally maybe it's the context that we're living in now but it felt weirdly satisfying to watch an authoritarian asshole eat it and uh go down the way that he does and isaac you do a show about shakespeare and politics so i'd love to i'd love to get and this obviously murders on stage of political leaders in shakespeare for the past couple of years has been a thing we've been talking about yeah for totally better or for worse. i totally forgot so, about that julius caesar was yeah, yeah 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 the julius caesar in the park yeah i yeah. so what I what's what's fascinating about it is that he is humiliated at the end. That is a sequence of abject humiliation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at the end, there's the, you know he when he goes to draw his sword with the arrow through his throat, um, it is an almost comical moment because you're you know because it, of course he's already lost and he just doesn't know it, which is mm-hmm. a really interesting inversion of what happens in the end of the play because in the end of the play, Macbeth who the, I don't think the play portrays at all heroically, but he does get this kind of wild West send off, right? Once he knows he's going to die, he's like, mm-hmm. I'm taking you all down with me. He gets these, he does these like great sword moves. He has actual like <laughs> badass Clint Eastwood style one liners. There's the amazing <laughs> moment where he says, you know, a, a man, only a man who wasn't born of woman can defeat me. And then right. he duels this guy and he kills him. And he just says, thou wast born of woman. I mean, <laughs> Come on. It's pretty good. Right? And then at the end, he learns that Macduff was born via a cesarean section, so he was not technically born of woman. And he's like, All right, we're still gonna duel to the end, right? I mean, like, that's great. He he there's a he's not redeemed, but he manages to to, He's a badass. Yeah, he plot he he pries some dignity from the jaws of defeat in, in that movie, in that in that play, in the original. But in Throne of Blood, it's just like he's just like weeping and screaming and the arrows <laughs> just keep coming and coming and coming. And like you just like there's nothing he can do about it. Um, you're just watching him be tormented. And I agree that in the year of our Lord 2020, this is a deeply satisfying thing to watch. happen. Oh, mm, it's like candy. It's so good. 
I I want to. I've got a big question that I think we should hit, which we're going to. We've we've danced around a little bit, but there's this great in the. If you read about the way this movie was accepted, which uh, was was reviewed and looked at, there's these Peter Brook, arguably a pretty important person when it comes to Shakespeare and theater. Slightly, and, yeah, slightly. Yeah. Per- perhaps one of the five most important directors of Shakespeare in the 20th century. Directors exactly. of, uh, in the 20th century period. Yeah. He said that he called the film a masterpiece, but denied it was a Shakespeare film because of the language. So I guess the question is, do you think a film like this, can a film be a Shakespearean film without the language? That to me almost seems to like also deny or to silence the form of film as opposed to like theater. So if you're, if you're Mm -hmm. making the claim in relationship, let's say to language, which sure, I totally get you're also, though, in some sort of way denying the fact that these were obviously, first and foremost, theatrical productions and that they're wedded to a certain kind of medium. Ergo, any sort of film is impossibly a Shakespearean film because it's in a completely and utterly different genre. I huh. think that there's a it's a we, it's a very English thing to say, yeah. frankly, because okay. the assumption is that Shakespeare is the language and not what the language is doing. Mm-hmm. You know, um, mm-hmm. the 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 end to which the language is the means. So, you know, obviously Throne of Blood is not in iambic pentameter or, you know, it's not right. using the original Shakespeare text. But, you know, a, a translation of Shakespeare, we would still say is Shakespeare, even though it's in a different language and, and, and whatever. And so the question is, you know, does it do the kind of of things that a Shakespeare play does thematically in terms of how it arranges its dramatic action in terms of its materials. And I actually do think that, that that's an open debate. I like to think that it's inspired by Shakespeare, right? That, 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 mm-hmm. that it's inspiration is Shakespeare. It's taking several plot points from Macbeth. It is an adaptation in the sense that it is using those to somewhat different ends than the original play and to explore slightly different thematic territory in slightly different ways. But that just makes it a Shakespeare adaptation. That doesn't make it, not Shakespeare. I just think that's sort of an absurd thing to say, frankly. Yeah, I was, I thought it was interesting. I mean, it's like, yeah, you're taking the voice of an, like you said, a a very, very important figure, but it also, one of the most startling things about this film, watching it in the, in the context of having had many, many, many Shakespeare adaptations on film is it's startling to not hear the language or to not see it represented in the subtitle. And I think it, in this case, makes you lean into the movie more because you know, when they were writing the film, they weren't referencing the play. Like they did, they did, they were sitting in a, in a Rio con chilling out writing all day without a copy of the text there. Kurosawa knew it and Agune knew it. And you couldn't read Shakespeare in 1940s Japan because he wasn't Japanese. So they'd read it as school children. They knew it that way, but they weren't sitting there and going like, okay, then this happens. And I think that what's beautiful is that you can feel some of the, for lack of a better word, the greatest hits of the play. Like when, um, Lady Macbeth Azaji comes in and hands him the sword and it, it feels like moments from the play without the precision of the language which I think is represented visually really really effectively you don't you don't need it but I do still feel like although it's not given a it never says based on Macbeth from Shakespeare 
that's not even in there. It just does really feel like an inspiration and a focused one. You know what I think is one of the great, uh, I actually did not know that they were working sort of entirely from wisps of memory without mm-hmm. the, without the script in front of them. But that, that that's amazing. Cause I think one of the real examples of that, which is not a greatest hits is that after King Duncan dies, there's this scene with an extended description of everything that's going wrong in the natural world, which is mm-hmm. really fascinating. And most productions do nothing with, cause it would be too expensive. Right. Um, But there is that sense that the natural world is in chaos and is rebelling and is sort of working against the humans that 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 is pervasive throughout the film. And in that moment, in the original Macbeth, they say that Duncan's horses have eaten each other. One of the things right. that's gone wrong in the in the world is that the horses of the Whoops. king have eaten each other. They're eating each other. And in that exact moment, there's a scene of a runaway wild horse that they can't right. control. So there's a weird way in which like it's dug so deep into the subconscious yeah. that some version of that image has wound its way into the film because it was just like shrapnel in their subconscious, not because they were like, oh, this is a cool analog. I, I, that's that's fascinating. Although there is, it is really yeah. fascinating. There is that but, one line though that is taken from the original, right, where Lady Macbeth says like. Well, it's too late. You're already sitting on a throne, a throne of blood. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Um, well, I mean, you know, like, and obviously I don't have the language, unfortunately, the capabilities to figure this out. But this is also something I've been wondering a lot about in relationship to film, um, foreign films and subtitles. And to what degree, obviously, could we possibly... I'm not saying, again, that they were at any point lifting language or translating language directly from the source material into this film and that just didn't get translated. But I have often wondered about what is, what we are, what we're missing in the translations, because a lot of times also mm. you might like, there's always a, there, there are oftentimes when I'm look when I'm watching a film like this, and I think it happened once or twice in this film where there does seem to be a moment of mistranslation because what the characters are saying doesn't seem to quite match up with the action. And I've just always wondered, like, is there in fact something missing on that level that um, would make like those parallels a bit more obvious. But I'm not, again, I'm not trying to imply that there mm. is lifting of the language, but it's just always been something that's been curious to me because you often get, obviously, you get different, you often get different translations of canonical text. And I know there are often times when subtitles are translated again, but you don't often hear about that being like a big deal about like a more accurate translation of a film's dialogue. Yeah, I, I think in the, if I remember correctly, in the sort of newest version of Hiroshima Monomore, they retranslated the dialogue because the original, I remember seeing the original subtitles in college and I don't even speak French. And I was like, mm-hmm. this is wildly off base. There's there's even a part where, <laughs> you know, the, the, the male lover says to the woman, I wish you had died in Hiroshima or something like that. And, and mm-hmm. she says in response, moi aussi, me too. And it's literally just not in the subtitles at all that she said that. It's like the yeah. like an incredible, uh. you know. So so there is a way in which, as foreigners viewing these films, we're we're viewing them through a glass darkly, right? We 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 are never going to get the exact language or the exact meaning. But at the same time, that that's actually true of Shakespeare's plays as well, right? Because often there's multiple different versions of the text that have been reconciled. Mm. There's um, spellings that are ambiguous that an editor has decided which word it means there's you know there there's archaic words and if you're looking at the Mm. Folger edition you know you're looking at the notes on the left hand side and sometimes they're choosing one of many definitions so so in, in a weird way I think it's not that different from trying to puzzle through 
Shakespeare's texts, which is still a rewarding experience for the viewer or reader. You know, it's interesting. The as I understand it, the I don't know if this is true in the Criterion edition, but I think it is. The original subtitles were prepared by Donald Ritchie, who was like the uh, great first yeah. um, Shakespeare guy, and he was present when they were shooting the film. Oh, fascinating! Yeah, it must have been. There's a great. I'll send it to you guys. There's a great piece he wrote about it that I found earlier today about being on set, and it must be have been interesting to be like, okay, you're going to do Macbeth. And then he reads the play, and then he sees the movie, and he's like, "Well, the script from the the, the move the uh, the play is not going to help me do the do the translating here because this is something this is something very different." But in relation to that, one thing I noticed in the film, and this is just a small observation, is that when in the scene with the ghost, the ghost says "hi" a lot, meaning yes, and that's never translated. There's mm-hmm. never a subtitle for that. Or there's it's never subtitled in the film. So I wonder if like. How the, a film made in 1957, I wonder if different decisions were being made about what exactly to subtitle in the film. And it's just a fascinating question. But yeah, we're watching the film through like a tinted lens, so to speak. Yeah, well, through the, yeah, through the veil of translation, let's say. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the end. So the end of the film is much like the beginning. There's a choral passage that's about ambition and cyclical history. And I, I'm... I'm really curious what you guys think about this this ending with the cyclical stuff because I'm mixed on it, I'll say. <laughs> I think it's one of the most Shakespearean things about the film. Uh, uh-huh. You know, the, the, the general belief in Shakespeare's time about history was that it worked in cycles, um, that, that it was cyclical, particularly between sort of authoritarianism and freedom, right? That you would have a sort of society that was too repressive, that there would be some kind of revolution that would sort of grow in freedom and then collapse into... Uh, chaos and then authority over and over. That was one of those circles, right? And you see other circles all over the place. Richard II is a circle. By the end of Richard II, Henry IV has committed the exact crimes that cause Richard to be deposed, for example. And Macbeth is a circle. At the beginning of Macbeth, who are they fighting against? The rebellious Thane of Cawdor. That's who they defeat and whose head they chop off. And that's exactly how the play ends. The rebellious mm-hmm. Thane of Cawdor, who's now Macbeth, has been defeated in battle and his head has been chopped off. There's an early scene in Act One and the, and the final scene of the play are almost identical in terms of dramatic action where it's like, this guy's been beheaded. Mm. Now I'm handing out titles and favors to secure my kingship and now everything will be fine. So if you've been paying attention to the play, you're like, this ending, everything is not fine. Some <laughs> other, How does Banquo's child end up on that throne if someone he's not related to at all is king. Yeah. Someone's gunning for this guy, you know? And so, um, so I loved that, that they, that they maintained that cyclical view uh, in the film. Yeah. I feel, I, I once saw a production of Macbeth that ended with Malcolm. It's Malcolm at the end who takes over, right? Yes. Um, uh, on stage alone and the witches coming on stage. Mm, that's great. And it fading. Totally. And I thought it was perfect ending um, yeah i mean death of stalin does the same thing you know they're the if you've seen the, the i have to see film. it still oh, oh it's amazing but the ending of death of stalin is basically the ending of a shakespearean history play or a tragedy where you're like oh all this Ooh. shit is just going to happen again and again yeah. and again is what it's telling you in its final shot and and i, I don't know i i love that i mean that, that's very narratively satisfying circles are very satisfying in a narrative sense you know yeah um and and i enjoyed that that aspect of the film what do you think george I mean, I, I, it's again to me watching this too, it really resonated a lot with Ron. And I think the cyclical nature of yes. everything kind of again is meant to convey just kind of the folly of human ambition that it's just kind of it leads to nowhere. We're all going to die. 
what's the yeah. point of any of this shit? <laughs> the kind of, and again, it shows that and it does it <laughs> cool. really well. Cool. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> cool, cool, cool. Cool. Yeah, and, and in King Lear and in Hamlet, you know, that circle is broken just because everyone's dead. Mm-hmm. There's no one to continue the circle right. because the world is ba- like Fortinbras is now in charge. Everyone is dead. Or at the end of King Lear, you know, there's that moment where they like offer the throne to Kent. And he's like, actually, I'd rather go kill myself yeah. and just walks off stage. <laughs> you know, that's how he is. It's like, like, like no one wants the throne. You know, that cycle is broken through sort of horror. But here, because order is restored, the cycle is restored. So long as you have that order, you know, that strict hierarchy, something, someone's going to be gunning for the guy at the top. It also reminded me, too, of just thinking again about like what the the Shakespearean plays that Kurosawa was attracted to this, obviously Ron, King Lear, Macbeth. And again, which I think I said in our, we recorded this episode on Ron, which hasn't been released yet, but this idea again of like that, it says a lot about him and his view on humanity and political power and ambition that these are the two Shakespearean plays that he decided that he wanted to adapt. So like... Well- and Hamlet. Oh wait, well yes, the of bad course. Sleep, yeah, sleep the bad well sleep well is, yeah. is based on is based on Hamlet. But there's no, uh, there's none of like the you know the the problem plays or none of the like obviously none of the comedies like would be amazing to fucking see like Kurosawa like try to do a Shakespearean comedy comedy of errors <laughs> yeah something exactly. yeah Ron that would yeah. be pretty rad right like wow, that would be as so you rad. like it something. <laughs> Um, as you I, like, I it would be I, good because they wander in the wilderness for so long. Yeah, like wandering yeah. in the didn't, wilderness is something he's so good at, right? So like, didn't Brana do uh, as you like it? Brana did do an as you like Japan? it. You know, there's the sort of golden age of Brana Shakespeare adaptations that ends with Hamlet, and they get very dire after that. And he did yeah. do one of them is uh, is an as you like it. Yeah, yeah, I haven't seen that. I have. I feel like it kind of came and 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 sort of disappeared. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't sound like it's highly ranked by the people on this. Call. What was uh, what was the Joss the Joss Whedon one? Was uh, it, that was much ado about oh, nothing? Yeah. Much that, ado about nothing. That, yeah, I am not a I am not a fan of that movie. Not seen it. Um, Hot garbage. No, just, it's not. It's it's you know. Um, <laughs> Critical, critical term, hot garbage. Hot garbage, yeah. You know, as we in the critical trade like to say, <laughs> it's a hunk of shit. No, um, it, it uh, sucks. Uh, Still um, curious, so I want to check it out. Yes, but back to Throne of Blood. Um, Throne of Blood. We now well, go back to our regularly scheduled program. I feel like we've hit a lot of the big stuff. I totally agree. This is a horror movie. It's a great October. Yeah. You know October what, film. You know what it made me um, think of actually kind of is Hour of the Wolf. I love that movie uh, so much. I feel much. like this is like, I mean, not that he was huh. trying to make, not, I mean, you know, like not that they actually have any relationship to one another, but yeah. I was like, this feel, feels like it has a similar place in the filmography that Hour of the Wolf does with Bergman, where you're like, this guy suddenly decides to make this creepy as hell horror movie and like really nails it. Like the film is, Throne of Blood is, is I, I think, absolutely qualifies as horror. And, um, and it really plays up the horrific elements of the source material to great effect. Absolutely. I also think that they both deal with emasculation in a really, really interesting way. Mm-hmm. Like, like Hour of the Wolf just being sort of about the way this man is humiliated and then Macbeth with the wife egging him on and, you know, telling him what to do. Like, they're really interesting movies. It's coming up a lot that in the 50s, there's a lot of connections between Bergman and Kurosawa with the idiot it feels like it could be a Bergman film it's really interesting I've never thought of them in Mm. parallel but it seems to be coming up a lot as we talk about these films can we talk about the blood wall 
Yeah. Or just like any, the any of the sets, just how amazing every set is in this movie. Cause it really is, you know, like every, every shot you're just like, this is like the perfect invite. Like the subtext has just leaked into the environment. Every, every well, shot feels like that. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the environment too, because like the blood wall to me seems like a kind of like different iteration of the fog of like the swirling fog that he's kind of like wandering in and out of like the walls seem like this, the shapes seem like these really kind of ominous clouds that have infiltrated like the interiors. Yeah. And it takes on this kind of quality they were talking about earlier about how like the natural world is also completely and utterly topsy turvy and has been upended because of the violence, because of the regicide that's taking place. You know, I I had a mentor in graduate school for whose class we read Macbeth. Actually, it was a class on plot, and one of the, he had this term uh, wonderlands. And what he means by wonderlands is like essentially when the character's subjectivity find can find no outlet. Um, the outlet it finds is actually the world around them and they become sort of mm-hmm. trapped in this nightmare landscape where scale is complete often scale is completely out of whack and it can't be escaped like the subway station and Jacob's ladder is a, is a good example of it but mm. like you know and um, I just couldn't help but think of that class and think of him the entire because yeah. every scene is in a wonderland they are always trapped in some kind of prison of fugitive subjectivity where the world is sort of looming over them in this way um uh and that scale is completely off and it's called spiderweb's castle right or spiderweb castle which obviously implies a certain kind of suggestion of like a prison totally who we should uh boris karloff would be in if if, if there was a movie called spiderweb castle produced in the united states boris karloff would be the lead and it would have been filmed in like 1937 30 exactly yeah i would think it'd be so good i, I well love the done. idea who was this who was this graduate advisor or this graduate uh, then uh he was uh, the novelist charles baxter who's probably oh most yeah of famous course. for a movie called yeah, yeah. Peace of Love. yeah. Uh, i studied with charlie and love him very dearly and he has a couple books of criticism about uh, about writing that are like super super useful but but wonderlands was this whole thing that he sort of drilled into us that you know uh, when he and i watched night of the hunter you'd be like see it's a wonderland night of the, the nature the natural world is this sort of nightmare prison the coen brothers use that sort of technique a lot mm. um and i really felt it here that 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 and i think that's part of why on a design level this film has been really influential on how people design productions of Shakespeare plays. I feel like I've seen some version of that blood wall like yeah. in a thousand photographs of a thousand different Shakespeare productions. You know what I mean? Well, I also think that this movie does something that you don't necessarily get all the, which is it sure to your point, it manages to externalize a kind of interiority that theater can do that film is notoriously not great at, you know, because film is, is so rooted in a kind of realism. And I think Kurosawa is able to like understand you know it's fascinating because there's there's all these comparisons to him and uh Sergei Eisenstein as like a pure cinematics guy like he really like you could arguably watch this movie and not know what people are saying it's that visually rich that it would work on that level but part of it is I think he understands how to use the psychology of characters in a visual term he i would love to see him direct a play version of this i feel like is what i'm saying it would have been great to have seen this on stage kurosawa is one thing i was noticing this time while watching it and i feel like i'm a better film viewer than i was 20 years ago you know um is i would hope anyway is how good at staging he is Mm -hmm. and how difficult staging on film actually like if you watch movies 
you can see how much directors often struggle with staging to such an yep. extent that actually often the editing is edited around staging so that there is very little of it. But just like in terms mm-hmm. of bodies in space and moving through space, he's that he he has the deftness of a great theater director in terms of how yes. he arranges bodies in a way that tells you something about the story. Um, I don't know if you guys listen to the Team Deacons podcast. The Roger Deacons has a podcast with his wife where they interview film yeah, industry people. I've listened to a bit of it. Yeah, and, it's and, so good. And there's one where he's interviewing Joel Cohen and they're talking about his early influences and he lists and he talks about Kurosawa when he said, but what he talks about about Kurosawa, this is what I so found so fascinating is that he's a brilliant narrative dramatist. Hmm. And I think hmm. when we think about Kurosawa, we think about the sort of huge visuals, you know, we, we think how beautiful yeah. the films Seven are, the, Samurai. The, the, yeah. the deliberative pace and all that stuff. But Joel Cohen's absolutely right. He is an exquisite narrative dramatist. And a lot of that is actually just in the staging. You know, it's interesting you bring that up because it, I was when I was doing sort of notes while watching the film, there's a moment w- that actually takes place in this bloody room where Mosizu, Mosizu is standing in a wide and he's looking at the bed and Lady M is off screen and he turns and looks at her and it's almost astonishing. I wish I've seen this. I wish I had seen this film on the big screen because when he looks at her, your focus is drawn to him in such a way that a wide shot feels like a close up. You really, and clearly he was making this for the, for the, for the movie theater, but you're drawn to it in such a way that even on like a 50 something inch TV, it works really well. And then he walks towards the camera and there's all this negative space that then becomes an actual close up And, it's one of the few moments where you feel as though you are watching a director who's so deliberately in control of the medium that, that you understand what an in-camera edit is, which is a term that people throw around and they don't actually usually understand what it means because you never see it unless it's a director like Kurosawa. What about the moment where they're like leaving the castle and the gate swings open and yes. changes the framing of the entire shot and then it swings closed? And the, just the, the entire shot is transformed just from this gate because it has a thick, there's a thick wooden, you know, board jutting out of it. And it completely mm-hmm. changes right. the division of the shot. And then it closes. The camera never moves. But that door opening and closing um, creates this whole internal sense of drama in just that one moment. And also, and I, 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 this comes up in the book and in these films starting from like 1955 on, he was shooting three cameras at once. Yeah, what's that about? You, you mentioned that um, uh, we on were Twitter, uh, on Twitter. Yeah. Can you two guys tell me a little bit? Because I, I, I actually don't know that much about Kurosawa and, and sort of purposely didn't prepare that aspect for this yeah. appearance. So, so educate me on the three camera thing. So he basically, as I understand it, and there's there's some literature about this, I think it, it sort of reaches its high point in high and low, particularly in that f- opening sequence in the in um, Mufune's like luxurious apartment pad where that almost feels like a play. Like he and he staged it, as I understand it. Um, and he stages moments in this. A key moment in this is is when he kills the the guards in front of Duncan's um in front of Duncan's bedroom where he staged it so that they could do it once. And he would shoot three cameras so he could capture all the action and do one take and move on from there. And he was sort of known for when actors would be like, how was it? He'd be like, well, that's why we rehearse a lot. He wasn't walking around and being like, you guys did great, whatever. So it's, he, it almost feels as though he, to your point about him being a theater director is he was moving in the direction of trying to, trying to almost make plays and capturing them with three cameras. I, I think that's 
simplistic about how to think about it. But when you know that and you watch a film like High and Low, it's very clear that he stages these things and then cuts to different coverage. He did it also in Seven Samurai. What blows my mind about Throne of Blood is, as to your point, it's the most visually specific movie. So the whole time watching it, I was like, where are the other cameras? Why do you need other cameras? This movie is perfectly staged in every single framing. So this one remains a mystery to me, but I can see it, especially in some of the larger films like Seven Samurai, Yojimbo, and um, High and Low. Maybe it's just in the interiors. Like you could see the Banquo, mm-hmm. the Banquo's ghost scene. I could imagine that being shot on multiple cameras at the same time. But there's yeah. no way you can get the like huge tide of men running to the right. gate or whatever. I guess, like the- yeah. That is one instance though, actually, where you could argue that there is a point of view uh, shot, right? Of like Mifune looking at the ghost. Cause you do get that like weird kind of like angling down a little bit towards the ghost. Um, and that's also why, like going back to this question of theatricality, why I felt like for me the film didn't seem staged like a theater production because of wh- how great of a job it does with like using its exteriors with like the forest, the fog, mm-hmm. the shots of the castle, um, the forest coming alive at the end. Like if those as- those parts of it to me, like again, as in a typical Kurosawa film, he makes amazing amazing use of landscapes and of natural imagery yeah and the scene the the ghost scene towards the end is on a soundstage the which the evil spirit the ghost mean? yeah the yeah. yeah the evil spirit sorry Just the evil clarify, spirit yeah. scene they're they're all they're all studio stuff with a slowed and the down voice is, so is the voice is that yes, I mean, the voice oh is what is God, going what so is the effect creepy. on that voice because they've slowed it down right yeah, they've made it deeper and they've slowed it down and, and, and done all these crazy things. And then he got other actors, some very famous, to play other iterations of the ghost. One of the guys is one of the actors from Se- the swordsman from Seven Samurai appears for like three seconds in that sequence. So he's swapping out actors in the role mm-hmm. and then also great. And then also giving him this like Buffalo Bill voice. From well, Sons it's a woman. Lambs. Yeah, but I mean, they give, they give the character yeah. this Buffalo yeah. Bill voice from yes. Sons of the Lambs. Uh, that's the thing that I remembered having not seen <laughs> the film in you'll 15 be, years. You'll be king. <laughs> it's that like, explains it's why, a sad yeah. Philip Seymour Hoffman voice the, a little bit. The ghost is like, can you help me put this uh, couch in the uh, van, please? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, Philip Seymour Hoffman would be a really good chaos ghost creature. Oh like, my god! Like, amazing, like his, like his Mission Impossible three performance. Like I put a bomb oh in your head. Oh my god! Sound familiar? <laughs> like when he could just be like, he's be like, "Hey, you're Scariest. gonna be, you're gonna rule this fortress. Gonna, you're do, gonna be in charge. It's gonna be you. Do you have a I wife? Love you so much. Do you yeah, have exactly. a wife? Do you have exactly. somebody you love? I'm gonna hurt them. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna hurt them bad. That's really good. It that's is. That's yeah, really that is. good. Can I say? Um, now that we've gone this far afield, that oh, I please. met Phil, I met Philip Seymour Hoffman once. <gasps> Because he came to see a terrible play I directed. Uh, and the play was good. I did a terrible job with it. It was a terrible production. My fault, mostly. Um, but the other person who was the fault of is the friend of his who was in it. And so he came to see it. And I just remember he rolled into the matinee wearing like threadbare cutoff jeans and a like shirt that had been washed so much that it was about to fall apart. And like, uh, like, and he just sort of rolled in, you know, he said, he said hi to me very briefly. And then he, he, he watched it. And then he sort of, you know, you know, don't talk to me way said congratulations and left. Right. But a friend of mine afterwards was like, I'm not saying you have to wear a suit and tie to the theater, but you should probably put on pants. Right. (laughs) 
God bless. I do feel like there are people that were in the in the mid 2000s who were in the right place at the right time to have interactions with Philip Seymour Hoffman that they will never forget. It was like a very specific New York City theater moment to be like, yeah. there he is. Yes. He's over there. He's wearing ripped jeans. Yeah, it's exactly. amazing. Exactly. Oh my exactly. god. Oh my god. Hi. Here goes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um. Isaac, this has been great. This was a great. And this is really fun. Thank you. I'm Isaac, glad yeah. you did it. Thanks so much for doing it. Um, you have a lot of stuff going on. I'd love to chat about. Let's start with talking about uh, sneakers on your podcast, working with Phil Alden Robinson, because I listened to that this morning, and was wasn't like, he amazing? He was so great. Yeah, he was so great. Do you feel like when you do the show and you talk to all these different creative peoples that there's like a a lesson that you've learned or is there like a consistent thing you hear from these creative people operating at like the height of their powers? Oh, well, uh, one thing is I have really worked to approach guests from in a diverse array of fields, you know, Mm -hmm. um, early on, (laughs) it's very easy for the three hosts that we have June, Ruman and myself to just book writers. We're all friends with writers. Ruman is a novelist. I'm a nonfiction writer. You know, like it's just, we could just only talk to writers. And so very early on, we were like, we, we shouldn't just talk to writers. And then I Mm -hmm. promptly went out and booked three months of writers. I mean, so, (laughs) so, you know, um, so, uh, uh, trying to talk to more composers and directors and maybe, you know, Joe Sacco, the, the great comic book journalist is going to be a guest this week and, and, and stuff like that. So, you know, um, uh, that's been really exciting. So what I've actually tried to do is make sure there isn't a formula to how I approach these folks. Sometimes mm-hmm. like the sneakers episode, what I loved about that is because I was just such a huge fan of the film. It, 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 yeah. He's not promoting it. The movie's 20 years old. Do you know what I mean? He was, I was just like, Hey, do you want to talk about this? And he wrote me back and said, yes, you know? And, and so in that case, it was just a deep dive into like, tell me about your process using this specific thing Mm -hmm. as an example. But there's other times where it's like, you have a body of work and I want to talk about how your process has evolved over that body of work. And so I, I, I like, um, being able to have all those, all those different approaches, but also my hope is that a listener will tune in, even if they have no idea who the guest is. Mm-hmm. And even if it's not someone in a field they necessarily care about. And in order to do that, you do have to try to aim for what is abstractable from this to the lives of our listeners. And that, mm-hmm. that's always the challenge with each interview, I think, is to try to find those points because you don't know what they're going to say. Yeah. One of the things that he said that I thought was so on point was the thing about uh, talking to the the broadcast journalist who he'd write copy for or he'd write like you know the brief bits about and the guy would be like well who cares like why do i care and he would try to explain it and the guy would be like no don't explain it to me rewrite what you're what i'm gonna say like let's fix it up it's a really it's like a really valuable lesson to learn from I, I went back like and that. rewrote a big chunk of my book after that right the the, the so what it's called the so what you're a piece of writing has right. to have a so what and um that's really true in journalism because the so what has to be in the first sentence without mm-hmm. without you literally saying dear reader this story is important because mm. well, you know you can do that in this american life right you're like this is a story about my father and how he died you can like say that in the first yeah. sentence or whatever but you have to like get the so what there really fast and i think that that's true of more fields than journalism now because mm-hmm. there's so many other things demanding our attention at all times well podcasting for, for one, sure i think yeah. the you most, gotta get there quick the most important medium of them all yes the most important yes. um <laughs> 
how, let's chat about real enemy, uh, enemies, sure. an experimental documentary exploring conspiracy theories in the American psyche. Yeah. Why would you pick something that's just so not related to our present moment? Can I tell you a funny story? Uh, there's a funny Please. story about that. And hopefully the so what will will be clear. Um, real Enemies started as a live multimedia piece commissioned by the Brooklyn Academy of Music for BAM Next Wave 2015. And when we made it for BAM, uh, for the Next Wave Festival, so it, it had an 18-piece jazz band on stage. There's video projected on 15 screens hung all over the place. It's a huge set, crazy lights. Um, you had to do some convincing of people that the subject matter was worth their spending 80 minutes oh dwelling God. on to, to understand. Yeah. It was a, it was a simpler time. And, um, <laughs> 2015. and, and, and as a, uh, to, to give you one example of what a simpler time it was, the, the show in that form, we've revised it for this new version ended with birtherism. One of the things it ended with was birtherism. Mm. And we were looking for everything in the show is found text and video clips and stuff like that. And so we, we were looking for what's the right clip to express birtherism. And one of my co-creators, either Darcy James Argue or Peter Negrini, I forget which, said, uh, oh, well, we should use a clip of Donald Trump because he's like chief birther. And I was like, come on, guys, come on. We need a politician. We need someone who we have to take seriously. To use, and so we used Sheriff Joe Arpaio, right? And so you know that gives you a sense of how much the oh the God. facts on the ground have changed since then. Um, you know, it's not like we went into it being like we are making a prophetic work. But I will say, to toot my own horn, that work did turn out to be prophetic. The age of conspiracy that it is talking about happened immediately after the show was made, and so now we've had to kind of tinker with it a little bit, update it here and there, so that it still feels uh, vital. And, and and rooted in the present moment. And if people are interested in watching this, it's it premiered last night online and and uh, through a uh, Cal Performances. So Cal Performances is a wonderful venue in Berkeley, and they had booked our show to perform there. We were going to do we were going to revise it and get it out there before the election, right before the election. Got to get it done before the election. And then COVID hit, and so originally we were like, yeah. we'll create a weird live thing that streams to a drive-in movie theater and then people can watch it and drive in and then there was another wave in california and that got canceled and so then it became okay we're going to turn it into a documentary film which has been actually a wonderful experience it's a lucky we're lucky that to, to have had the opportunity to do that um so it is streaming from Cal Performances. You can go to calperformances.org, I believe. Let me. We'll put a link, mm-hmm. obviously. Yeah. Yeah. The, if you go to calperformances.org, um, you know you'll see the you'll see a under buy tickets. You'll you'll find it, or you can you can. Um, I'll send you guys a more direct link for it that you can put in the show data. So you can you but you can go to calperformances.org and buy a ticket, and it, it's just streamable on demand through the end of the year. Sounds really awesome, great. Yeah. I'm going to absolutely check it out. And your podcast, Lend Me Your Ears, still available? Still available. We're not making new episodes. It existed. It was a one season limited series mm-hmm. by design. I had always thought we'll do one. Cool. We'll do one year. Um, I enjoyed doing it a lot. I would love to do more. But you actually, in trying to relate the politics of Shakespeare's time to the politics of our time, um, you run into the problem that his career was actually quite condensed. And so mm-hmm. the there's only so many times you can talk about the succession crisis, <laughs> right? Right of the of the of the 1590s, which has a great impact on his work. There's only so many times you can bring that up, you know. So um, one season, I think, was really the 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 right call. Even though I miss doing that show, and I love doing it a lot. Well, we'll be sure to include all of this and working, please do, and and all the notes. And I I'm really curious about um, reading the method. When yeah, it's, yeah. When it's out, it sounds so. 
so c- compelling. And I'm again, you're ahead because I feel like that's something where it's like, why isn't there a book like that yet? There, someone needs to write that book. So kudos to you for for doing that. As I finish a draft of the book for my editor, I'm like, oh, this is why there's not a book. About mm. it. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank Throwing you. Throwing it away. I, I'm, is it I'm in a partic- ex- isn't it a particular line that Bloomsbury's publishing? No, no. So this is uh, Bloomsbury's just, uh, it's part of their, you know, general audience trade. Yeah, yeah. It's my second book with them. The first one was The World Only Spins Forward, which I co-wrote with Dan Kois and is about uh, the play Angels in America. It's the story of the play and its aftermath and sort of the AIDS crisis through the lens of that play. Very cool. Yeah. And who's just quickly, so like, uh, what chapters are uh, you examining in that book? Anybody in particular you spend a lot of time writing about? Oh boy. Well, you know, part of the problem is you don't want the book to be 800 pages long, right? And there are already some wonderful books out there sort of exploring what's called the method line in American acting. Mm. So, but you do have to talk about the ones that sort of shape it as it goes along. So, you know, obviously Brando and Clift Mm -hmm. and Dean, although a lot of my part about Dean is not very positive. Um, uh, Kim Stanley, Rod Steiger, Wow. Um, you know, uh, there's a little bit of Paul Newman, actually more of Warren Beatty, uh, uh, even though, you know, and then when you move into the seventies, it's like everyone, right? right <laughs> it's yeah. like, yeah. you know, it's everyone, but, 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 um, Ellen Burson, Al Pacino, um, Diane Keaton and Robert De Niro are the main seventies actors that I'm spending a lot of time on, I would say. Um, but it's, it, it is strange cause it's like a century of history. I'm trying to cover it in roughly 400 pages. And so wow. there's no one actor I'm spending a, the, the hugest amount of time on. Um, and there are other books that do deep dives into their work that are really worth checking out. Awesome. George, do you have a Brando impression in you? God, do I, did I ever do Brando on the podcast? Sure. <laughs> no, I don't think you've ever done it. I'll work on I'm it. Dead. It's not as good as my Philip Seymour Hoffman. Of course, just, of course. just scary. It's like I'm channeling it, the ghost of it really is. Well, the yeah. problem is, is that Brando actually, you know, for all he has that reputation for mumbling and whatever, there, he really alters his voice quite a bit between performances, mm-hmm. which makes it hard. I mean, you want to, you know, do the like, you'll come here on the day my daughter's wedding, right? But like, that's not what he sounds like. Like the, you know, the but you are Blanche of Stanley Kowalski is not what he sounds like in On the Waterfront or Julius Caesar. He, he's actually quite wonderful in yeah, that film with Julius Caesar. Yes. that's right. Uh, with John Gilgood um, and James Mason. <clears throat> um, but but Brando, so Brando's, Brando's a tough one. He also has that sort of in the in on the waterfront. They're like, I could have been a contender. Like he has that little bit of like melodramatic quality. To it. It's so good. Oh, no. that's cool. well, we should do a season on him. Uh, if you did a season on Brando, I will be absolutely <laughs> here for it. Unless you do, uh, but I, I would I would plead to skip Viva Zapata, which is a <laughs> almost unwatchable. Yikes! Uh, uh, yeah, Kazan I don't think film. I've seen that one. You know, it was, I think, think it was pretty that. highly regarded in its day, but I got to tell you, you know, like it's a lot of it's a lot of brown face. Oh, it has not like, aged What well, was the John Wayne movie we were talking? Oh, uh, John Khan? Wayne did the Genghis Khan yeah. movie. Woof. Yeah, woof. That Good one's God. <laughs> well, next up on our show, we're going to talk about The Lower Depths, um, another theatrical adaptation. And then we're going to chat about The Hidden Fortress with our friend Randy Wilkins, filmmaker buddy, who made the Spike Lee Deer episode on Apple TV. So you should all check that out. Um, Isaac, thanks again thanks so again, much Isaac. for being with amazing. us. This is a great pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'd love to have you back. Um, if you're out in the world listening to the show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get podcasts. And thank you for listening. I was Liam Billingham. I was George Fragopoulos. And I was Isaac Butler.
I don't know. Did you, you do the guest there? No, you were. You, yeah, were. you were. I yeah. think it was yeah. you. It, it really seemed don't like forget. it was you. Throne of Butler. Don't forget it. Yeah, Throne exactly. of Butler. Throne of Butler. This was... Oovra Buster. Nailed it. Um, uh, you come here, you come here on the day of my daughter's, on the day of my daughter's wedding. 